Well, there were three men who were talking about how they decided on how much money they would give to God. And they were comparing the way they did that. And the first guy said, well, what I'll do is I'll draw a circle. And then I stand in the middle of it and I take all my money and I throw it up in the air. And whatever lands inside the circle belongs to God and whatever lands outside belongs to me. And the second guy said, you know, that's, that's interesting because I have a similar system. He said, I too draw a circle, I get in the middle, I throw everything in the air. But whatever lands outside the circle belongs to God and whatever's inside belongs to me. And the third man said, you know, brothers, this is amazing because I do something similar as well. I draw a circle, get in the middle, I throw all my money in the air, and whatever God catches is his, and the rest is mine. Well, you can relax. Today I'm not going to talk about giving and how much you give to God, but I am going to talk today about how we decide, how we make decisions. What is it that that God wants us to do when it comes to making decisions, especially in setting up a test or some system? You know, in Christian circles, we talk about putting out a fleece. And putting out a fleece is code for setting up a test and asking God to work a certain way and and reveal his will to us. And that comes from the passage we're going to be looking at today in Judges chapter 6. So I invite you to look with me in your Bible to Judges chapter 6, where we're going to look at how God, uh, how Gideon interacted with God and asked him to reveal his will. In Judges 6, beginning in verses 36 through 40, we're told, Then Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. And it was so. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not let thine anger burn against me, that I may speak once more. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, and let there be dew on all the ground. And God did so that night, for it was dry only on the fleece, and the dew was all on the ground. So what we see here is Gideon sets up a pass-fail set of tests. He wants to determine what God wants him to do, and it involves taking a fleece, which was a sheep's skin that still had the wool on it. He lays it out on a threshing floor, which you'll remember from a previous sermon was this area high up on a hill. It was a flat area that was open. The wind could blow through and blow away the chaff. And so he lays this out, knowing that the wind and the sun would dry out the fleece, Uh, and the ground. And so the idea that he sets up here is that if the fleece is wet and the ground is dry, then the problem is solved. He knows the answer to his question, and that happens. But the problem is that it seems to have created another question for Gideon. He starts to think, well, you know, maybe I messed up the test because wool would naturally hold the water longer than the ground. And so he starts to wonder, did, did, is it a supernatural occurrence or just natural? And so he says, I need a redo. Now, this is one of the problems when it comes to setting up tests for God. Because for us, what we can do is we can set up a system where maybe we mess up the, the, the actual results or we skew it. We could limit the results. If we say, God, here's option A and here's option B. One problem could be both may be within God's will. This isn't an either or uh, or a right or wrong answer. God says, you know, both of these are within my will and it's your choice. The other problem is maybe God wants an option C 
and we don't include that in the test. You know, if we say I'm going to flip a coin and heads is option A and tails is B, and you're thinking, well, if God really wanted option C to be the result, then he would make the coin land and stand up on its edge, right? Now, God can do that. He's God. But the problem is, like the opening illustration I use, sometimes we game the system. And we say, okay, God, I'm going to make it so that the answer that maybe you want isn't one that's readily available. And this can be a problem with how we set up a test. Another problem or point that we need to consider is when we give God a test, what we're really doing is being presumptuous. Because what we're saying to God is, I want you to operate, Lord, within my box, within my guidelines. In this case, Gideon was saying, I want you to change the way nature works. I want you to have something dry that should be wet and vice versa. And so what he's actually doing is saying, God, you have to work within my box the way I want. And sometimes we do this with God, right? We set up a timeline and we say, God, if you really want me to go on this trip, then my phone will ring at 12 o'clock right on the dot. So what happens if our phone rings two minutes early or 10 minutes late? Was our clock off? Was God's off? Or was it just coincidence that the phone rang. And so what happens is Gideon goes through, he sets up a test, it turns out a certain way, and he says, you know, it's kind of like rock, paper, scissors. I lost the best two out of three, so I'm going to go four out of five. And he says, God, let's do a redo. Let's add another test. But the second test points to the same results as the first one. Now, before we talk about the second one, let me mention something about the first test. As you notice in verse 38, it says, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Now, as we've already mentioned, it would naturally occur that the wool would hold the water longer. But this was a supernatural event that occurred because the Hebrew word for bowl that is used here is only used one other time in the entire Old Testament. We saw it earlier in Judges 5.25 where it was translated as a a magnificent bowl. And so this was a a word that was used to describe uh, a very exquisite bowl that was used by royalty. It would be like thinking of some special family heirloom. If you have a a china type of bowl, it's very precious. Uh, This is a, a, a bowl fit for nobility. Now, it also has the meaning of a very large bowl. And so as you think about where Gideon is, he's camped in the countryside with the army. It's very doubtful that he has a magnificent bowl in the sense of, you know, something very expensive. What he would have are utilitarian type of bowls, very large bowls that were used to serve the soldiers. You know, you go through a chow line and they have these big uh, containers. And so what this means is the fleece isn't just a little damp. It's not like he ran his hand over and said, oh yeah, it's kind of wet. This means that as he picked up the fleece, the water was literally running off it. It was just dripping wet. It was so soaked that as he wrings out this sheepskin, it fills a large bowl to capacity. And so it it tells us here that this was a very clear answer. The ground is dry. If you had one of those kind of dews that would soak a fleece to that level, if you've ever been camping and you wake up in the morning and you think, did it rain? It was so wet. You know, the tent is dripping. The trees are dripping. Everything is soaked. And so as Gideon sees this, the answer is very clear. And it's why he says to the Lord, you know, Lord, forgive me. Hey, I know I'm on thin ice here, but God, I, I, can I have a redo? This time I want to reverse what happens. I want the fleece to be dry and the ground to be uh, wet. And we're told God also made that happen. 
I think of the story of a, a man who was in his home and a flood was coming. The authorities were sent in. They said, listen, you need to evacuate. Uh, the river's rising. The, the dam is going to be releasing water, and this whole area is just going to be inundated and flooded. And so they evacuate this town downriver, and everybody is, is gone. The police go through to make sure, and as they knock on this one particular door, a man answers. And they say, hey, listen, you need to leave. The water is already rising. It's coming. It's dangerous. You need to go right now. And the guy says to them, no, the Lord will take care of me. And the police say, you need to leave now. We're leaving because it's dangerous. And he says, hey, God's got this. I'm okay. So they leave. The water rises. The first floor of all the homes in the area flood. The man moves up to the second floor. And the authorities send in a rescue boat because they know the water is going to continue to rise. They get to this man's house. He's hanging out a second floor window. And they say to him, get in the boat. We're here to rescue you. And the guy says, you know, God will take care of me. And they leave. The water continues to rise. He gets up on the roof. Uh, They send another boat by, and he says, I'm not going. God's going to take care of me. And as a last-ditch effort, as the the roof is being covered over, uh, a helicopter comes in. They drop a line to him, and they say, we're here to get you. Get in the basket. And the guy just says, God's going to take care of me. And they leave. Well, the man ends up being washed away, and he drowns. He dies. He gets up to heaven. And uh, while he he meets the Lord and he says, God, what happened? I told everybody you would take care of me. Why didn't you take care of me? And God said, I sent the police two boats and a helicopter. What else did you need? Friends, this is Gideon. This is a question that applies not just to the second sign or even the first. God could have said, Gideon, what do you need? I've given you sign after sign. Remember, this is a story continuing from the first part of chapter 6 where we saw how God was giving Gideon signs. And it reminded me of this comic that I have where uh, a man was praying, Lord, if it be your will that I continue on in my ministry, uh, just show me a sign. There's a crash from heaven as God drops this pile of uh, stop signs on the guy. And uh, he climbs to the top of the pile, and then he says, God, any sign will do, right? (laughs) Does that describe anyone here? This is Gideon. Gideon has a pile of signs. He's been buried in signs. God could have said, Gideon, let's, let's review history. Remember when I called you. You were hiding in a wine press. You were in a hole. You were scared. You were cowering. And I came to you, and Gideon, I called you. And I promised you I would be with you, not just once, not twice, but three times. I said, I will be with you. I will deliver the people through you. And then you said, God, how can I be sure it's you talking to me? And so remember, God had Gideon, Gideon offers a sacrifice, and God sent this consuming fire, and it was just, it was obliterated. There was nothing but a burn spot left on the rock. And he builds an altar there. And then Gideon is, the first thing he does is he goes and he tears down the pagan shrine in his father's backyard. And then the people came and they said, we're going to kill you, Gideon, for, for doing this. And remember, God had promised that he would be with Gideon. He would protect him. God had already told him in verses 12, 14, and 16, I will give you the victory. And so what happens is, is the people come against Gideon. God protects him, even to the point where his name got changed from Gideon to Jerubbabel, a name that means let Baal contend. And everybody knew, hey, there's Jerubbabel. Every time they said his name, they would say, God is real and the pagan gods are false. Gideon, you have these reminders time and time again. 
And he says, now Gideon, you're here on this mountainside with your army preparing to go to battle and you're looking across to the, to the enemy and you're scared. He says, but take your eyes off of that and look around you. There are 32,000 soldiers from Israel who have gathered to you, if you remember what we saw. And he says, Gideon, do you remember who these people are? Uh, it started with your family, the Abizarites. They were the ones who were first in line to kill you when you tore down the pagan shrine. Then the townspeople and then the tribe of Manasseh and then the surrounding tribes. And they were all going to kill you and now they're with you in this battle. He says, Gideon, what more do you need? God says, there's no ifs with me. I told you what I would do. I told you I'm with you. I've shown you that I'm with you. The final thing God could have said is, why are you seeking a sign when you yourself have said, my instructions are crystal clear? As you look at verse 36, Gideon said, if thou wilt deliver Israel through me as thou hast spoken. He says, look, God, I know what you said. I know what you said you'd do. I've seen how you've already done it over and over. You know, as we're looking at this passage today, the application for us is not on using a fleece to determine God's will. This is not where God is saying, here's a model for how you go about seeking a sign to determine what I want. Rather, the the application for us is to look at the faithfulness of God, to look at the instructions God has already given. What has God already told you and me in his word? What, What are the things that God has clearly revealed to us. And the question is, are we following? Are we obeying? I have a friend, uh, a fellow pastor, Gary Inrig, and he says, by using the fleece, Gideon was in effect saying, I know what you said. I know your command and promise, but I'm sorry, that's not enough. Does that describe anyone here? Have you ever had a situation where you say, God, I know what the Bible says. I read it. I've heard a sermon preached on it. I know what it is you want me to do, but, you know, God, that's just not good enough. I need more. Now, we may not verbalize it that way, but it's what we do when we say, look, God, I know what you tell me about how to conduct my business. You tell me if I'm a man or a woman in the work world that I'm to be a person of integrity, that I'm not to cut corners, that I'm, I'm to, you know, serve you and honor you. The Bible says whatever we do, do it 100% is for the Lord. And so you're sitting there saying, yeah, but God... My competition doesn't follow your your standards. They cut corners. They cheat people. They put out an inferior product. You may be a salesman in an office where you're trying to get an account with a client and you say, hey, the other guys are taking clients out to these strip clubs and doing things, and if I don't go and do that with the clients too, they're going to do business with my competitor instead of me. And God, if I want to make my numbers, if I want to you know, come in in the quarter where I need to be, then I'm going to have to start doing things the way the world says to do it. Others of us maybe do that when it comes to relationships. We say, you know, I know what the Bible says about being pure and and keeping the marriage bed undefiled, but, you know, God, my boyfriend or girlfriend uh, wants me to sleep with them or do things with them that I'm not willing to do, and and other people are, and if I don't do this, I'm going to lose this person that I love. Or maybe we say, you know, God, I know your word says not to be unequally yoked with a non-believer, but I love this guy or girl. Or we try to justify it and we say, you know, God, I've been waiting and I've been praying for this this godly husband or wife and you haven't come through yet. And so I'm going to have to do it my way because, to be honest, the, the pool is a little shallow right now of quality Christians. And so, God, I'm just going to have to go outside of your standards and, and do it my own way. 
And later you find out why God said what he did. As you struggle with a spouse who doesn't share your values. As even going to worship becomes a battle because the person is like, I just want to sleep in, I don't want to do this or that. And your home is not what you thought it would be. Dave Boswell wrote a book called How Life Imitates the World Series. And in it, he tells a story about Earl Weaver back when Weaver was managing the Baltimore Orioles. And Weaver had a rule that nobody could steal a base unless he gave the sign that you could, you could try. And he had a player by the name of Reggie Jackson, you know, a, a superstar baseball player who was upset by this rule because Jackson felt like he knew the pitchers and catchers better than anybody. And he felt like he could look at and decide whether or not he could make uh, the, that stolen base or not. And so one game, he was kind of getting antsy. He looks to the dugout and Weaver waves him off, don't do it. And Jackson's kind of waiting, and then uh, he sees his opportunity. He gets a good jump. He runs for second base. He manages to slide in, and he's safe. And he stands up, and he kind of triumphantly smiles at his manager in the dugout like, see, uh, I vindicated myself. I knew I could do it. And after the game was over, Weaver took Jackson aside, and he explained why he hadn't given him the steal sign. He said, listen, the next batter in our lineup was Lee May. He's our best power hitter other than you. And he said, when you stole second base, first base was left open, so the other team just walked May because uh, they didn't need to worry about it. So you took the bat out of his hands. And he said, the next guy in our lineup wasn't very strong against that pitcher, so Weaver felt he had to send up a pinch hitter to try to drive the men home who were on base. And that took away Weaver's opportunity for bench strength later in the game when he needed it. You see, the problem was Jackson only saw his little part of the picture. He was looking at his relationship with the pitcher and catcher while Weaver was watching the whole game. And he had a strategy and he understood the big picture and all that needed to happen. And men and women, may I remind you, the same is true with us. We may think, hey, I know better than God. I see this little part of the picture, and I know what would work. And God is looking at the whole picture, and he knows what's best for us, and he wants his best for us. And so when God gives us a a signal, it's wise to obey no matter what we think we may know. Gideon already knew what God wanted. He was just struggling with following through. Now, Gideon's not the only one who's faced struggles and doubts. You know, many of us face those as well in our own life. And when we struggle and doubt, what I want you to understand is God doesn't write us off. God doesn't write us off. You can, you can look at many men and women in the scriptures who doubt it. You know, one well-known namesake is Doubting Thomas. You can read John chapter 20. And you see that how uh, when, after Jesus Christ rose from the dead, after he had been crucified, remember he appeared to more than 500 witnesses. And he started with individuals like Peter. He went to groups, small groups like the disciples. And when he first met with the disciples, Thomas wasn't with him that first time. And Thomas is back with the rest of the guys. And and they say, hey, we have seen the resurrected Lord. Jesus is alive, just as he said. And Thomas said uh, in John 20, 25, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe Now, Jesus appeared again, showed himself to Thomas, said, here, put your fingers in the nail holes, put your hand uh, in the spear thrust hole in my side and be believing. 
In John 20, 29, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. There are going to be times we struggle. But God tells us, instead of asking for a fleece, we need to ask him to strengthen our faith in those times. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 tells us, we walk by faith and not by sight. Gideon's seeking signs because it's a sign of his struggle to trust that God would come through. And, and, and God has already said, Gideon, I've come through over and over and over. And he could have just said, you know what, Gideon, I'm through with you. I'm going to go get somebody else who will believe what I said and will do what I've asked. But as you look at verse 40, it says, and God did so that night. I love words like that because it's an encouragement. It shows, it shows the grace and patience of God. When we struggle, when our faith falters, when our faith is weak, God doesn't give up on you and me. Instead, what he does is he graciously comes in and he strengthens people like Gideon and Thomas and the rest of us. Again, I love what my friend Gary Enrig says here. He, he says, Gideon was a special student in God's slow learner class. You or I would have forgotten Gideon and found someone else. The Lord had done all these things in Gideon's life, yet he was still saying if and putting out tests, but God kept loving and working with him. I thank God for that because I'm afraid that I'm also one of God's slow learners. It takes me so long to learn such simple lessons. Over and over, I've learned to be thankful that my God is the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. Friends, that's a quote from Exodus 34, 6 through 7. It's how God describes himself. It's how God uh, interacts with us. It's what he's proved in my life and in yours, I'm sure, as well. Isn't it wonderful that we have a God who loves slow learners like us? If you're somebody who struggles at times with your faith, or your follow-through, I want to remind you, God is not through with you. God has a plan and a purpose for you, and he's not given up on you. Now, it may be some of you are thinking, Roger, I want to do what God wants. So how do I know? How do I know what God's will is? There was a book written called Take Another Look at Guidance. In it, Bob Mumford uh, compares discovering God's will with the sea captain's docking procedure of a particular harbor in Italy. This was a, a very dangerous harbor to get to. It's, it's down a narrow channel that has a very small margin for error, and a lot of ships have been sunk trying to make it into the harbor as it goes through the channel, getting wrecked on the rocks. And so what they've done is they've erected three large poles with lights on them. They have a main light that's green, and then they have two additional poles with other lights. And as you come into the harbor, uh, if you line up all three of the lights, this main beacon and then the other two lights, if you steer in such a way that they all line up, then you're safe. You're in this little narrow channel that will get you into the harbor. But if a pilot sees two or three lights, he knows he's off course and he's in danger. So he looks for that main light and lines the other two up with it. And as we try to determine God's will, we can think of a similar system for us where you can think of three lights. The main beacon light is going to be God's word, the Bible. The second light is going to be the Holy Spirit. 
the one who authored the scriptures, God himself. And then the third beacon can be things like circumstances. So many times people will come to me and say, Roger, I think this is God's will for me. It's, it just couldn't have happened by coincidence. It's amazing how things have happened. What do you think? Is this God's will for me or not? And I always say, well, let's talk about the three lights. Let's see if we can line up what God has already revealed. Because you see, sometimes circumstances or even the feeling of how the Holy Spirit might be leading in your life is subjective and how you interpret it. So we have to make sure these things line up with the main beacon of God's word. I want to remind you again that when we think about the Bible, it was written by men that God superintended the writing of. So the Holy Spirit is actually the author of the Bible. And God will never reveal something to us that contradicts what he's already revealed. God is not a God of confusion. He's not going to contradict what he's already told us. So you always go to the Bible first. Psalm 119.105 tells us, Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And in Psalm 119.133, it says, It will direct my footsteps according to your word. You see, the Bible is God's guide for us, and whatever is not directly stated can be discerned from it. Think of how different our world would be if we followed God's word and what he's revealed. As we look at our world and the mess it's in, I think of Micah 6.8. In Micah 6.8, God says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. How different would our world look if all of us did those things? Bill Hull wrote a book called The Disciple-Making Pastor. In it, he says, the majority of Christians stand at the edge of the path of obedience, waiting for more information. And God's answer to that request is simple. You don't get more information until you start walking down the path of obedience. Why should God tell us which way to turn the rudder if the boat is not moving because it won't go anywhere anyway? If you require all the facts before you step out in faith, you're not going to get very far. God wants you to walk by faith, not by sight. Since the word of God is a light to your path and a lamp to your feet, it provides enough light to walk in and see where your next steps should be. As I said, the first light is God's word. The second light is God's Holy Spirit. And we see Gideon was given that. In Judges 6.34, it says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. We as New Testament believers have this same gift that Gideon was given, and yet even better, because in the Old Testament, God's Spirit would come upon special people like kings and prophets and others to enable them for a period of time, and then it could be withdrawn. King David prayed, do not withdraw thy spirit from me. But we as New Testament believers are sealed and indwelt. We've been given a permanent gift of God's presence in our life. And as you think about the Spirit being our guide, we've been given the map, the Bible, we've been given the guide, God's Holy Spirit. I've traveled, you know, around the world and ministered in multiple countries. And sometimes the the places I'm going will send me instructions. They'll say, here's the address, here's how you get there, this is what you should do to find us. Uh, And then in other places, they'll say, we're going to send you a guide. Now, If I get the instructions in a map or something, you know, I'll navigate the system. I'll, you know, deal with the language barrier, look at maps, try to do things. And and so far, I've been able to get everywhere I need to go. But I much prefer when somebody meets me at the airport, right, and they're holding a sign that has your name on it. 
and you walk over and they say, are you so? Yes. And they say, and the person says, I'm going to be your guide. Come with me. And you get in the car with them and they drive you. They know where they're going. And as believers in Christ, we have both the map and the guide because we have God's Holy Spirit resident within us. And in those times where you're saying, I can't read the map. I don't know what this means. I don't understand fully what God's word is saying. Pray to God. Say, God, you wrote this. You've revealed this. Would you help me understand it? In those times where you don't even know how to pray, Romans 8.26 tells us, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. It's kind of like dialing 911, where you're saying, I can't even... Yell help. I can't say I need police. I need fire. I need X, Y, Z. When you hit 911, the the dispatcher immediately sees your address. And if you don't know what to ask for, they send everybody. You've got police and fire and, and everybody's coming. And this is it with God. There are times we just are flat on our back and we're like, God, help. I don't even know what to ask. God, I'm so discouraged. I'm, I'm so lost. I don't, I don't know where to turn. And it tells us that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. He's translating our prayers. God knows what we need and help is on the way. Now in those times, as I said, where you feel you're being led by the Holy Spirit, if God's word says very clearly the channel is here and you're saying, well, you know, I feel like God's guiding me over here. Friends, you're off course. Those lights need to line up. Now, I mentioned circumstances. Sometimes we don't know how to interpret circumstances, or we may be too close to them, so we don't know what to do. And that's where God has also given us uh, guides that are people around us, other believers in Christ who also have the Holy Spirit resident within them, others who have the Bible, who can read the Bible, pray on your behalf and say, you know, Roger, I I don't think you're quite understanding what God wants you to do here. Now, When you choose your counselors, I want to make sure you understand this. They need to be mature. They need to be mature believers. They need to be men and women who are those who love God, who know God, and love you enough to say the things maybe you don't want to hear. Uh, You can read 1 Kings chapter 12. There was a situation where King Solomon's son, Rehoboam, had just come to the throne. King Solomon, the wisest king who ever lived, died. His son Rehoboam was given uh, the, the throne over the nation of Israel. The people came to Rehoboam and they said, listen, things have been tough under your dad. We need some relief from taxes, other things. Uh, Rehoboam is like, you know, he wisely said, I need time to, to look at the problem. I need time to pray and consult advisors. I'll come back to you in a couple of days. So he goes to his father's cabinet. I mean, what a gift. Here's the wisest man who ever lived who assembled this cabinet of counselors. They would have been the smartest men and women who walked the face of the earth. And he talks to them. He gets their advice, and they say, you should listen to the people. You should lessen the burden. But Rehoboam doesn't like that answer. He's like, you know, I'm going to lose revenue. I might look weak to the people, acquiescing to their demands. So uh, he says, I'm going to go get a second opinion. It tells us in 1 Kings 12.8, he forsook the counsel of the elders which they had given him and he consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. You see, Rehoboam said, I know some people who will tell me what I want to hear. 
My friends are going to rubber stamp whatever it is I think I want to do. And instead of listening to wise counsel, he went and got somebody to say what he wanted. And the result was the nation of Israel was split into the northern and southern kingdoms. Friends, when you seek counsel, you need to find those who love God and who love you enough to say the hard things. And if you're somebody that is being asked for advice and counsel, you need to love the person enough to say the hard things. You may say, but Roger, I'm going to lose that person as a friend. If you really love them, you'll say what needs to be said. Proverbs 27, 6 tells us, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. If you really love somebody, you'll say the hard things. As we end our time today, I want want to remind you that we serve a God who loves us. We serve a God who loved us so much, he left his throne in heaven to come to earth to die for you and me. God is a God who wants the very best for you. You may feel he's withholding something good from you, but God says, I have the big picture, and I want the very best for you. When Jesus Christ came, he said in John 10.10, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life. God wants the very best for us, brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus also said a few verses later in John 10.27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. As believers in Jesus Christ, we don't need a fleece because we have something even better. We have the great shepherd. We have the one who knows us, loves us, and leads us. And we need to listen to his voice. Will you join me, please, as we go to the Lord in prayer? Lord God, you tell us in James 1.22, not to merely be hearers of the word, but doers. God, would you help us to be men and women, boys and girls who follow you, who listen to you, who then step out in faith and do what you've revealed to us. God, we know you are a good, good father who wants the very best for us. Jesus, as you told us in John 10, 10, you came that we might have life and have it abundantly. God, you have our very best interest in mind. Holy Spirit who lives within us, you, you lead and direct us. And again, you want the very best for us. So would we learn to listen and discern your will? And would you help us, God, to walk with you in the way that you lead? We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. 